I pray that uh, you would help what we just sang to, to not just be words. And I pray, God, that you would uh, forgive us when it is. And Lord, I ask you to give us the grace to surrender our lives more and more fully uh, to Jesus, to repent as we need to, and God, to, to live lives of obedience because we trust you. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would impart saving faith to those who need it. And God, we thank you for what we've already experienced today, and we pray that you would move and work in the rest of the time that we have together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat if you would. If you've got a Bible, we're in Philippians chapter 2. Again, we're glad that you're with us. Stella, that's uh, awesome. Thank you for your step of obedience, sharing your testimony today. Uh, Ryan, thanks for leading community. If you don't know Ryan, Ryan's our pastoral intern, and that's the first opportunity he's had to lead, lead communion. And uh, he did better than I did the first time I ever led uh, communion. Um, you know, the, my home church is Monview Baptist Church, and Rusty's dad, Jack, was my mentor in ministry, and so he wanted me to give the opportunity to get the experience of doing it before I went to seminary. And uh, you know, we do it a little differently since COVID, you know, with the little prepackaged elements. Before that, we would we, like come and serve ourselves, but usually in a traditional church, like deacons would serve communion to people, which is what happened uh, to, in, in this church. But and, and I just have to tell you, uh, I'm not sure if I was more scared the first time I preached or the first time I led communion. Like communion is a sacred thing. You don't want to mess it up. And so uh, I, I was really nervous, but uh, like there was this ceremony that went with it. There's this table with these tablecloths up front with the trays with the, the bread and the juice on it. And like the pastor and the head deacon would always remove the top tablecloth and then fold it together almost like folding a flag at a military graveside service. You grew up in that church too? Uh, okay, uh, been there, done that. Huh? And so, you know, that's how it was all supposed to work, you know, supposed to take off the top tablecloth and you guys are supposed to fold it together and you pray or something and then hand it to the deacons, they go serve it. All that was well and good, except I grabbed the wrong tablecloth. Uh, I grabbed the tablecloth underneath instead of the one on top, and by the grace of God, it didn't all turn over, but it came really close, and I about had a heart attack and almost ended my ministerial life before it started. I, I mean, anyway, I don't know what that has to do with anything other than to say Ryan did a good job, and I didn't, and... Um, so, we're going to talk about obedience today, but the title of the message is Obedience with a Purpose. And we need to understand that when God gives us instructions, when God gives us commands, they're not random. I, I th they're not arbitrary. I'm not sure that sometimes we don't think that way. There's always a why behind the what. You know, God's commands always flow out of His character God's commands always flow out of his own uh, inherent um, desire for and the fact that he's deserving of glory. They also flow out of his love, that he wants what's best for us. They flow out of his holiness and, and his perfection and, and, and his wisdom. And so when God calls us to obedience, there's obedience with a purpose. And as we look at this passage, as we continue on in, in Philippians... 
We're going to look at some commands he gives, but we're going to look at the reason or what he's trying to do through uh, these commands. And so let me start with this. This is a portion of an article that actually goes all the way back to 2007, and I think it was picked up and shared on NBC News. I would guess that it's worse now, but, but it starts with this sentence. It's considered, quote, the other drug problem. And what it is is that millions of people, now don't testify, but millions of people don't take their medicine correctly. Right? You're doing a good job with a blank face, but some of you, like, you think you're smarter than the doctor, and, uh, you know, but apparently a lot of people either don't take their medicine correctly, quit taking it altogether. In fact, this article said half of patients with chronic illnesses like heart disease or asthma skip doses or otherwise mess up uh, their medication. It says just 51% of high blood pressure patients stick with their medication as prescribed. It, it gave former President Bill Clinton as a recent high-profile example. said he stopped taking his cholesterol-lowering lowering medication, later needed open-heart surgery. Uh, the report estimated that the drug problem, this particular problem, could be costing the country close to $200 billion dollars annually in medical bills and lost productivity. In fact, it says that only 79% of doctors actually take their own prescriptions <laughs> correctly. And, you know, it, um, it speculates some different reasons. It says, you know, some people will, uh, you know, just kind of lose it. Some people will, you know, like they'll start feeling better and so they'll stop taking it. Some people, it's because the instructions uh, you know, confuse them. I mean, you know, like that sheet uh, that you get with a prescription from the pharmacy that's like, uh, uh, you know, a page of stuff that half of it doesn't make sense and the other half, it's like, you can take this medicine and you may get better or here's 43 ways you could possibly die by taking this medicine. It's not the most motivating thing uh, in, in, in the world. But the point of this is that not following the instructions can actually be deadly. And that's kind of the idea of obedience, is that not following God's instructions can actually be spiritually deadly. And I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired of watching people self-destruct because they're not following God's instructions. See, person after person doing that. See, God calls us to obedience because he knows what's best for us, and he wants what's best for us. Now, I want to start just kind of a couple of verses about obedience in general, and then we'll jump into this passage. The first part of Philippians 1.27 that we've already looked at says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So out of the gospel, live a life of obedience. And actually, the next phrase is, he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent. And then in, in the passage we're going to look at, uh, Philippians 2.12, he kind of says almost the exact same thing about, you know, my presence, my absence, they connect together. I read something when I was studying this week where 
uh, one of the, the uh, a desert monk from the 4th century put it this way. He says, if an angry man raises the dead, God is still displeased with his anger. And I think sometimes what we do is we think, well, I'm obeying here, I'm doing what God wants me to here, I'm pleasing God here, so it's not that big a deal that I'm not doing what I should here. And what this verse says is, let your conduct, really all of your conduct, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that my conduct always, I'm not saying I always obey, but what I'm saying is, it's when we're saved, Jesus is our Lord, and we're called to obedience and surrender in every part of our lives. We're called to repentance when we sin, and sanctification, spiritual growth, is a lifelong process where God deals with one area of our lives, and as he grows us there, then he starts dealing with another area of our lives, and he's more and more making us like Jesus, and it's an ongoing kind of process. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6 verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do the things which I say? And so he's saying it's a contradiction to say no Lord. If, if we say that we're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is not just our Savior, he's our Lord and so we're called to obey him. And again, there's a reason behind it. He says in verse 47, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently, strongly against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently. And immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And he's saying... That whether or not our life is going to stand is going to be based on what kind of foundation it's built on. And the foundation that it's going to stand is, that's going to stand is submission to and obedience to Jesus as Lord. That's how to build our lives. But beyond that, we got to understand that Obedience shows whether or not we're actually even saved. Listen, I think a lot of people think that Christianity is getting enough of Jesus to make their life better, to make them happy, and that's it. But again, if we're really saved, we're called to live a life of surrender. More and more, laying our life down, giving it to Jesus, following him, surrendering to him more and more. Why? Well, 1 John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. We obey because he loves us and we love him. And it says, and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, they're not to hurt us. They're not to weigh us down. It's not like he's just piling a, a load of big rocks on us. Really, his commands are to set us free. Obedience sets us free. I mean, think about it. It's like somebody parachuting. I mean, somebody could jump out of an airplane and say, you know, I'm free, but the law of gravity is going to kill them if they don't have a parachute. But if they have a parachute, then they have freedom. And disobedience to God's commands, going against the way he's designed the universe, 
can destroy us, but living in accordance with his commands can set us free. It's kind of like sometimes I remember when my kids were little and, you know, they're questioning things. And it's just like, just do what I tell you to do. They're like, why? Just trust me. You'll understand later. And, I mean, I believe, you know, as your kids get older, you ought to explain things to them. But sometimes you can't think, explain things to them. Sometimes it's just like, trust me. Or it's kind of like, if your kids obey, disobey you 50 times in a day, and every time they disobey you, they tell you they love you, are you going to feel real loved? Sometimes I think we do that to the Lord. We obey because he loves us, because we love him, and his commandments aren't burdensome. Therefore, our good, therefore, our freedom, therefore, our blessing. We don't keep God's commands to try to earn favor with God or try to earn a relationship with God. Even the Ten Commandments, if you go back and read Exodus in context, God had already redeemed them, and now he's giving these commands to show them how to live as his chosen People. He's showing them how to live out of a relationship with him. He's not showing them how to earn a relationship with him. You see, we're not saved by our own obedience. We're saved by the obedience of Jesus, the fact that he lived a perfect and a sinless life, that he died in our place. And because he was perfect, his perfect righteousness could be imputed to us, could be transferred to us as our sin as is transferred to him. We're saved by the finished work of Christ, but as believers, we're called to live in obedience to him. But what does that look like? Well, there's tons of commands in the New Testament, but let's just focus on what Paul says to us in Philippians 2, 12 through 18 here. So uh, he says, therefore, my beloved... It's a term of affection. As you have always obeyed, so he's commending them for the way that they have followed him, the way that they've listened to him, the way that they've ministered to him. You know, in some of Paul's letters, Galatians, 2 Corinthians in particular come to mind, Paul is defending himself. Obviously, the Philippians have been good to him. There's a close relationship here. But he says, you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now even much more in my absence. He says, work out, not work for, but work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And then he says in verse 14, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. I think I made Jay and Molly memorize this one time. I don't, can, you, can you imagine why, parents? Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and, joy and rejoice with me. So, I want to point out to you in these verses three commands with a purpose and, and try to help us understand them and, and, and apply them to our lives. So, number one, in verses 12 through 13, we are to pursue... Spiritual growth through God's power 
so that we become more like Jesus. We're to pursue spiritual growth through God's power so that, in order that, we become more like Jesus. This is what he means when he says, work out your own salvation because it is God who works in you. And, you know, 2 Peter 3.18 tells us that we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 tells us that for, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So God's ultimate plan for our lives is that we become like Jesus. When we go to heaven, when we're glorified, we will be. But like we sang right now, God's plan for our lives is that we become more and more like Jesus. And I think a lot of times this is why we struggle as Christians. Because our plans and God's plans are crossways with each other. God's plan is you become more like Jesus. You know one of the primary ways that God does that? Suffering. Trials. That's a lot of what he's already told us, what we'll continue to see in the book of Philippians. What's our version of God's plan for our life? God bless me. God make my life easy. You know, God, take care of me, take care of my family, uh, and, you know, get me to heaven, and we're good. Now, when it, when it says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, what, what does this really mean? Because, you know, the way I worded the point is a little differently. The, the way I word it is we're to pursue spiritual growth. Well, I want to read something to you from Kenneth Wiest, who's a Greek scholar, and it's not anything technical and complicated, though, but I think this will really help us to understand it. He says, the words work out are the translation of a Greek word, which means to carry out to the goal or to carry out to the ultimate conclusion. We say the student worked out a problem in math. I'm sorry for those of you who math is a bad word, but it, this makes sense. The student worked out a problem in math. That is, he carried the problem to its ultimate conclusion. That's the way that it's used here. The Philippians are exhorted to carry their salvation to its ultimate conclusion, namely Christ-likeness. The salvation spoken of here is not justification, but sanctification, victory over sin, and the living of a life pleasing to the Lord Jesus. They are to see to it that they make progress in their Christian lives. And it says here that to do it with fear and trembling, this is not a slavish terror, but a wholesome caution. We're to do it with fear and trembling, realizing that someday we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our lives are either going to stand like gold, silver, and precious stones or they're going to be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. We're going to have to answer to him for the way that we live as Christians. So that's verse 12. But in verse 13, we have divine enablement. The saints are to carry their salvation which God has given them and which thus belongs to them to its ultimate goal, always remembering and depending on the fact that it is God who is working in them, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The word work in the Greek means to energize, to work effectively. Our words energy and energize come from it. The words to will are the translation of a Greek word meaning to desire. 
It is this desire to do the good pleasure of God that is produced by divine energy in the heart of the saint as he subjects himself to the Holy Spirit's ministry. It is God the Holy Spirit who energizes the saint, making him not only willing but actively desirous of doing God's will. He also provides the necessary power to do it. So, in in other words, and this, this is really important, religion says... Try and work and, and, and strive and, and, and do enough and God will accept you and it's outward. The gospel says that Jesus has done it for you. That he's paid the price so you can be forgiven. And he's now given his spirit who lives within you. And the spirit who lives in us gives us a new desire where if we're really saved, our deepest desire is going to be to please God. Now, there's competing desires. You know, Galatians 5.17, the spirit lust against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. We still have the old nature. There's still things that we struggle with. There's times we quench the spirit, and this is why we have to walk in the spirit, live under the control of the spirit, to, live, to really live in obedience. Not saying there's not a battle there, but if we're really saved, our deepest desire, and it's not natural, it's supernatural, it comes from the Holy Spirit, our desire is to please the Lord. And if that's not your deepest desire, and if you don't feel just bothered, and maybe that's too light of a word, when you don't, I'd say biblically it's highly questionable if you're actually a believer or not. And then to finish up what he says, he says in verse 12 we have human responsibility. In verse 13, divine enablement. A perfect balance which must be kept. If the Christian life is to be lived at its best. It's not a let go and let God affair. It's a take hold with God business. It's a mutual cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Uh, The saint must not merely rest in the Holy Spirit for victory over sin and the production of a holy life. He must, in addition to this dependence upon the Spirit, say a positive no to sin and exert himself to the doing of the right. Here we have that incomprehensible and mysterious interaction between the free will of man and the sovereign grace of God. So he says, work out your salvation because God is working in you. God himself is in you by, your, by his Spirit. If you're a believer and he's working in us, he's working on us, he's working through us. The Bible says he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have what we need because Christ is in us to be and to do what he wants us to be and and, and to do. But are we going to surrender? Are we going to seek him? Are we going to pray? Are we going to be in the word? You know, practice spiritual disciplines, confessing sin, abiding in Christ being filled with the Spirit, then that's how we actually work it out. We can have it and not use it. You ever seen like a professional athlete that kind of lets themselves go and gets out of shape and they just kind of wash out? They've got the ability, but they stop working it out so it doesn't work for them anymore. That's what happens to a lot of people in their Christian lives. Little compromise, uh, you know, lack of discipline, not daily habits of spending time with God. And we get cold. And as we get cold, then we fall into sin. And as we fall into sin, if we don't deal with it, if we won't repent, it's just kind of a downward spiral. You know, it's been said the failure in the Christian life is usually more of a slow leak 
than it is a blowout? Are we working out our salvation daily? It's there, but are we using it? So, the second command that he gives us. Remember, we're commanded to grow, but the purpose being that we become like Jesus. Second command in verses 14 and 15 is that we're to stop complaining and arguing so that we shine as lights in the world. We're to stop complaining and arguing so that we shine as lights in the world. Now, to me, these are a couple of the most relevant verses for 2021 that you could ever read. There's so much darkness. Followers of Jesus have an incredible opportunity to be light right now. But I think we're sticking, we're hiding our light, if you want to use Jesus' analogy in the Sermon on the Mount, under a basket. A lot of times by our words. I mean, he says here, when he says stop complaining and arguing, it means murmuring and, and, and disputing. So, you know, murmuring, I mean, you know, to murmur is just kind of like, he's ever kind of just kind of grumble, you know. It's, maybe it's not even intelligible words. It's maybe like me when I hit a bad shot on the golf course or something like that. Just kind of almost like growl a little bit. That's almost the, the, the idea of what he's saying here. But, you know, disputing, arguing. So, you know, it can be kind of something of our internal attitude. It can be how we're relating to others. It can even be, you know, let's be honest, we complain to God sometimes. You know, I mean, I could said that about having my kids memorize it. But this is a verse a couple of years ago that I really began to focus on and, and, and just try to be really intentional about it. I'm not going to complain. I'm not even going to complain about the weather. That, that's a discipline that I've tried to, uh, you know, engender in, in, in my life and, and to try to really focus on being more thankful. And I think that's really helped me through COVID. But I've kind of noticed, even as I was studying this week, I got convicted. That I've kind of gotten away uh, from that a, a little bit. And, you know, so much of this is our attitude that then comes out. Um. You know, when he says here that you may be blameless and harmless, it literally means free from fault. It means unmixed, where, uh, you know, there's, it's almost be like purity and impurity together. But he says without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Uh, you ever heard of scoliosis, like curvature of the spine? Like if you have a checkup at the doctor, that may be one of the things uh, that they, they check. Uh, the crooked is where that word comes from. And that's a pretty good description of the world. But the question is, are we contributing to that? Are we making a difference with that? Uh, I heard Matt Chandler talk about this recently, and he said, so I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect, I think there's a lot of witness in, wisdom in. You know, a lot of times we think if we're going to be a witness and, you know, people have questions, we're going to answer questions, we've got to study apologetics, we've got to study Tim Keller and all these uh, people, and, you know, we've got to know all these answers and, and, and everything. But he said, maybe right now you could be a witness just by not being a jerk, <laughs> just by not being angry. Just by not posting stupid stuff on the internet. 
I mean, I think Christians are killing their witness simply by what they put on social media in a lot of cases. Just by our complaining, our arguing, our fighting over little petty things. That's what Paul's getting at here. He says, if you want to shine, uh, in verse 16, there's, there's a phrase there that says, holding fast the word of life. And, and there's debate if it should be translated holding fast or holding forth. Maybe they both apply. If we're going to hold forth the word of life, if we're going to shine as lights in the world, well, our grace or our speech should be uh, seasoned with salt, full of grace, speaking words that edify, words that, that build up. If we're going to have a, I mean, it's like, you know, if we're going around all the time, you know, condemning, criticizing uh, whoever, from the president on down, and it's like, and, 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 you know, being negative and being hateful and arguing and fighting and be like, oh, yeah, Jesus loves you. You ought to be a Christian. I mean, who's buying that? So maybe we need to search our hearts and, like, how thankful am I or how much am I complaining and grumbling? How much am I building other people up or how much am I fighting with other people? How much am I pointing to Jesus in my life and in my speech? Or how much am I obscuring Jesus to people? Is my light shining or is my light covered up? And then number three in verses 16 through 18, he says we're to hold fast to the word of life so that there will be rejoicing. You know, when we stop holding fast to Jesus and his word. When people walk away from the faith, whether they literally do it in the sense of saying, I don't believe anymore, you know, deconversion or you know, whatever the word is that you want to use now, or when people just simply, you know, maybe they say they're a Christian, but they stop living their faith, they walk away from the church and those kind of things. Is there joy in that? It, when, when you see a pastor, especially a really influential pastor, fall, is there joy in that? I hope not. I mean, to me, that's a great grief, any of those scenarios. And, and that's what Paul is, is getting at here. He's saying, Hold on to the Word of God. Hold on to the promises of God. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to the faith. Keep being obedient. Keep being faithful. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't quit. He says, if you'll do that, I can rejoice in the day of Christ. I can rejoice at the judgment seat of Christ, which he knew was fast approaching for him, that I've not wasted my life. Because at the end of verse 16, he says, you know, so that I've not run in vain or labored in vain. He says in the next verse, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He's like I'm offering my life up as a sacrifice. He says, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. You be glad and rejoice with me. In other words, if you'll live this out to the end, I'll have something to rejoice in and you will too. And, you know, the thing to remember, listen to me, life is not ultimately about how long we live. 
We only have so much control over that. Life's about what we have to show for it when we die. Are we wasting our lives? Or will we have treasure, reward, crowns to offer up to Jesus when we stand before him someday? Again, our lives wood, hay, and stubble are gold, silver, and precious stones. Paul says, hold fast, hold on, stay faithful, stay obedient. Don't waste your life. He's like, don't waste my life. I've invested my life in you. You want to you break my heart? After all this sacrifice I've made? Don't walk away from the faith. You know, that would be any faithful pastor's heart. Because, you know, the Bible teaches that a church... If, if it's real, is an epistle written on a letter written on somebody's heart. It's not about the outward stuff. It's, you know, where do people stand in the day of Christ? So he says, hold on, hold fast to the word of life. And, and, and so, you know, just practically, if we're going to live out our faith, if we're going to work out our salvation, if we're going to shine forth as lights, if we're going to stay faithful, we can't do it apart from the consistent intake of the Word of life, the Word of God. I mean, we can't live out the Christian faith without being full of Scripture. That's why it's important that you're daily in God's Word. You know, when, when times are hard, sometimes you just got to hang on to a promise. When we were in the hospital with Molly, when she was little, my verse is Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is fixed on you because he trusts in you. You know, maybe the hardest thing I ever did in my life was preaching my brother's funeral. And I've told you this before. I mean, I didn't think I could do it right beforehand. And Robin's sitting there beside me just quoting over and over Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me to me. And, and, and whatever it may be, if we're struggling with anxiety, if we're struggling with fear, if we're struggling uh, with temptation, if we're struggling with hurt, if we're struggling with the future, if we need wisdom to go on and on, God's Word Speaks to everything. Hold fast to the promises. Hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the. I mean, you know, when when life is crazy and when life doesn't make sense, and you know, when even maybe sometimes Christianity doesn't make sense. You know, for me, it's what Jesus said in John or what Peter said in John uh, chapter six. Where else are we going to go, Lord? You are the Christ, the Son of God, and you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Sometimes that's what I've hung on to. Sometimes it's just taking God at his word and acting on it. That's what faith is. Faith produces obedience. Obedience comes from faith. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. If we really believe scripture, if we're holding on to the promises of God, it's going to express itself in obedience. That's how we're hanging on to him. You know, 
Paul knew here he was nearing the end of his life. He really knew he was nearing the end of his life when he wrote 2 Timothy. That's like the last communication we really have from him. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6, he says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. In other words, kind of some of the same wording he used here. In other words, I'm about to die. I'm about to become a martyr. And here's what he said in verse 7. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. And I've got to be honest with you, for a long time, I didn't get that. Why is he finishing with those words? I mean, to me, it'd be like, you know, why aren't you talking about all the churches you planted? Why aren't you talking about all this scripture that you've written? Talking about your missionary journeys. Uh, talking about all the people that you've led to Christ. All the people you've uh, discipled. Things that he talked about in other places. But the older I get, I think I may understand better where he's coming from. And what I think is this. If Paul said that at the end of his life, it must be a great accomplishment by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to finish well. To fight the good fight. To keep the faith. And to finish the race. And I hope that's our goal, to hold fast to the word of life. And if we do that, the fruit will come, and the other things will work themselves out. And you know what? There'll be joy for us. There'll be joy for others. There'll be rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. God calls us to obedience. And he has a reason for that obedience. It's not arbitrary. It's not capricious. It's perfectly designed. He calls us to faith in Christ because that's the only way to salvation. He calls us to work out our salvation. He calls us to be a witness to those around us. He calls us to hang on to him and his word so we can finish well and we can have rejoicing in our life and rejoicing at the day of Christ. There's a story that's told in history I don't know for sure if it's fact or if it's legend, but it's about Alexander the Great, you know, who conquered much of the known world. And, um, you know, the, the story goes that after every battle, if they, someone um, was a coward in battle, that he would convene a tribunal of his generals, of his commanders, and they would meet in this long room, and he would be on a throne at the head of it, and on the sides would be lined by all of these uh, the, these leaders, these generals, these commanders, the person would have to walk down up here before him, the charges would be read, and he would always condemn them to death. But there was one time that uh, there was a, a teenage boy who had somehow snuck into the army, lied about his age or whatever, and then had run during battle who had to appear before him. And Alexander um, for once, had a, had a little bit of compassion. And he asked this boy what his name was, and the young man meekly replied, Alexander, sir. And 
just weird, couldn't hardly even hear him, and so he asked him again, and he said it a little louder, and this repeated uh, a few times, and finally, you know, he, uh, I guess, summoned up the courage and just kind of boldly and clearly said, Alexander, sir, and Alexander the Great, this one occasion, decided not to have him killed, but he said to him, young man, either change your conduct or change your name. And I think that's what Jesus would say to us today. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you name the name Christian, he says, either change your conduct or change your name. He calls us to repent and obey, to live out our faith, to trust him and act on that trust, act on the word of God in obedience to do what he calls us to do. And if you're not a Christian... He calls you to himself. To surrender to Jesus and to acknowledge him as Lord because he is Lord. Not because of what he can offer you, not because of what he can do for you, although, you know, he'll give you eternal life and those kind of things, but simply because, you know, I think sometimes when we share the gospel, we picture God up there, like down on his knees, begging for people to repent, hoping that somebody might, quote, accept him. That's not the gospel. The gospel is he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world through the man whom he raised from the dead. He calls you to repent and stand in fear and trembling, knowing that you are condemned before him, that you are headed to hell unless you receive Jesus Christ because you have sinned against a holy God. You have uh, not just made some mistakes or not just been perfect, but you have chosen to rebel, to do your own thing, to go your own way, to live for your own glory instead of his glory. And he calls you now in fear and trembling to surrender to him and to flee to the cross and plead for the only remedy available for your soul, the blood of Jesus Christ who died for you. And so if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, he invites you and he commands you to surrender to Jesus in repentance and faith. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father.